0: I have a four-year-old daughter, just turned four last week. Uh, Her name is Lois, and Lois' favorite game in the world is hide-and-seek. Hide-and-seek is Lois' most favorite thing in the world to play. If you came to visit our house, I guarantee you, it does not matter how young or old you are, whether she's ever seen you before or not, within the first five minutes, she is going to invite you to play hide-and-seek with her. And she's not really going to wait for you to answer. She's going to say, will you play hide-and-seek? And Then she's going to say, you count, and she's going to run, and she's going to go play hide and seek. She loves to play hide and seek, uh, but here's the thing. She doesn't need someone else to play hide and seek with her. She will play hide and seek all by herself, uh, which is a very dangerous proposition when you're out and about in public. Uh, we have, and I wasn't there for this occurrence, and my wife relayed the story to me, but we have actually had to shut down the Trader Joe's out in Short Pump before because Lois disappeared. And so if you can just imagine every parent's worst nightmare, I mean, you're out at a busy store, and you look around, and one of your kids is gone, and you start calling out their name, and they're nowhere to be found. And there's people coming in and out of the store right and left, just quick, and you don't know what's going on. So screaming ensues, doors start getting shut, security protocols go into place, and everybody's hunting my little four-year-old daughter. Um, and then she just shows up. And then she just shows up. And she was playing hide-and-seek. And it happens at home, too. We were all out playing in the front yard one time, uh, neighborhood kids, uh, our kids, just everybody's playing, um, and time goes by, you're doing work, you're not paying attention to a lot of stuff, and somebody's missing, and the search ensues, and yelling and screaming and panic all of a sudden because they're nowhere to be found. We live here in town, and people are always up and down our street, and again, the parents' worst nightmare comes up. They wandered off, and someone found them and you're screaming and you're yelling. But all of a sudden, after a little while, Lois shows back up again. You say, honey, what, what's going on? Did you hear us call your name? And here's the crazy thing about it. She said, yeah, I heard you call my name, but why didn't you come out? Here's, it. because you sounded frustrated. Because you sounded upset. I was a little nervous, I was a little scared. In those moments, she's playing hide and seek, and as we're panicking and trying to find our daughter, all of a sudden she interprets it as fear and and, and anger and frustration, so she stays hidden even longer. And when we find her, all we want to do is just scoop her up, just grab her, just try to, to dismantle this picture that she has that we're frustrated and angry and try to say all the yelling, all the screaming, all the throwing tricycles around the yard, all the stuff trying to find you. It's not because we're mad. It's not because I'm upset. It's, It's because I love you. It's because of how much I love you, and and you don't understand when you just wander away, when you just leave my presence and you try to get away from me even though you think you're playing a game, you don't understand what kind of danger you're putting yourself in. You don't get it. You think you can handle it, you leave, but you don't understand how vulnerable you are. I'm not upset, I'm not yelling your name, I'm not screaming because I'm mad at you. It's because I love you and and I'm looking for you and I'm just trying to deconstruct that misunderstanding and then bring back a right understanding and a right awareness to her in that moment. And I tell you that story because in the ministry of, of Jesus, what we've been looking at over the last several weeks in his life and in his teaching, Jesus has been deconstructing misunderstandings that people have about who he is and why he has come and misunderstandings in particular about the love of God. And he's gonna do it again. And this morning, again, he is going to continue to deconstruct misunderstandings that people like you and I have about what the love of God really is, what it looks like, who he is, and, and why he's come. And here's the thing, if we're really honest, and we say this around here all the time, if we're really honest, I, I think there are a number of us who are here who are really afraid of God for all the wrong reasons. We're scared of him for all the wrong reasons. You know, after given all the things that you've done and how far you think you've run, all the things that you think you've done, when he finds you, you're afraid that he's going to be upset with you. You're a little bit like my daughter. You're, you, you're, you fear what's going to happen when I find you because we misunderstand the love of God. And so Jesus is going to, again, just deconstruct these misunderstandings that we have. And then there's others of us who are here who sense the love of God. We sense God's love for us, but here's the thing, we don't realize that the sense that we have of God's love for us is established on completely faulty foundations. We have all the right answers. In a sense, we do a lot of the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. We're right in some sense, but in the eternal sense, we're ultimately wrong. And again, Jesus is going to deconstruct our understanding of the love of God. And he's not just going to leave us there, though. He's going to build it right back up. He wants us to have a right understanding of who he is, why he's come, and in particular, what it means about the love of God. So, if you've got your Bibles, let's jump into Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at two different ways Jesus does this. One is going to be a parable, one's going to be a story, and the other is going to be an encounter that he has with someone. And in it, in both, Jesus is going to pick apart misunderstandings we have about the love of God. And I'm going to trust that by his grace, he's going to put them back together for you in your heart. And the one thing you're going to notice as we go through, in in either of the passages that we're going to look at, neither of them end with a, now you go and do likewise. They're, They're not going to paint a picture and then say, now you go do this. It's just going to be a picture of who he is. It's just going to be a picture of what the love of God really looks like in action. We're going to have to trust that God will do by his spirit what only he can do, and you'll see him for who he really is. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Starts like this. A crowd's gonna be gathering around Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners, they were all drawing near to him. Now, I just want to help you see what's going on in these two stories, one in the parable and the other the encounter. So we're going to stop as we go through it, and I'm going to try to help paint the picture so that what he's trying to say may land on you with the gravity that he's trying to tell it. There are people who are pressing into Jesus trying to hear him. One group are these tax collectors, and if you've been here for a few weeks, you've heard us talk about tax collectors in Jesus' day. You know that they were Israelites who bought the rights from Rome to tax their own people. They bought franchises from Rome to tax their own people. That was a big no-no. But they did it. And Rome set a price on how much they had to turn in. They would say, we need X amount of money from you as a tax collector. Anything you can get over that is yours to keep. So that led to a whole host of practices, lots of exploitation, people taxing anything and everything according to their own whims to get however, however much money that they could get. We, we heard this about tax collectors, but here's what you, you need to see behind that because you need to feel the freight of what's happening here. Not only were tax collectors, in a sense, traitors to their own people, were they considered unclean by Israelites. They couldn't go to the synagogue and worship. If you were to encounter one of them, go into their home, let's say, you would be unclean as well. You would have to go through all the purification rituals of having been with someone who was unclean, so they were shunned from that type of society. But here's the thing. They were collecting taxes for who? For Rome. Who was occupying Israel? Rome. Who was the empire that would go into these towns throughout Israel? And you can go read the historical accounts of it. They would march into towns and absolutely butcher entire cities. Historical accounts of thirty to 40,000 men, women, and children crucified along the roads into some of these towns. That was the Romans. And here were these tax collectors, Israelites by birth, turning on their own people to fund the very empire that was slaughtering their people and oppressing them. They weren't just tax collectors in the eyes of Israelites. They weren't just people who had turned on their own people. They were people who were funding the very regime that was destroying and occupying their people. It didn't get worse than this, these tax collectors. This is the emotional freight that's going into this, not just the societal picture. There's emotional freight here. Tax collectors are pressing in to see Jesus, and so are sinners. And don't skim by that too quick either. If you're here for any regular amount of time, you'll hear that you and I and every single one of us were all sinners, and so we tend to read this and go, sinners, and this this broad category of sinners, overall sinners, okay, great. Not in this day. In this day and age, there was a societal caste that they called sinners, a group of people who by birth or by trade, because what they did was either immoral or against the law of God, were considered sinners, unclean, disfellowshipped, born into a family of beggars, you were already a sinner, born that way. Diseased, sinner. Immoral business, sinner. You were treated in a particular cast of people. This isn't just a theological understanding that we're all sinners in God's eyes. No, this is a particular type of people that you don't associate with. You can't go near. Going near them puts you in harm's way because all of a sudden now you're going to be unclean. You're going to be disfellowshipped. You're going to be associated with them. You can't go near them. So here are these two groups of people, these tax collectors and these sinners, a very real class of people gathering together. And you've got to picture the scene. I mean, you don't take your family out to where this group comes. You can't. You can't get near them. But these are the people that are gathering and forming a crowd and pressing in to hear Jesus. Or there's another group there with them. Look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes, they were right there with them, the religious leaders, The religious elite, these guys in the stories that Jesus tells, often represent the religious people of his day who were doing all the right things, in a sense, for all the wrong reasons. Very concerned with what was right. Very concerned with what was appropriate. Very concerned rightly, in some sense, with the law of God, but for all the wrong reasons. For all the wrong reasons. Not understanding the way the love of God actually worked. These are the people that are gathering in to press in and hear Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, scribes, Pharisees. And as they press in, look what they do. They grumble. They're grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. You know what grumbling is, don't you? Grumbling is talking about somebody instead of talking to somebody. You know what that's like? Grumbling is is the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious people talking about Jesus rather than having the dignity and the respect to actually talk to him and say, hey, why are you doing this? Don't you understand that, at least according to the law, you shouldn't be doing this? Jesus, help us understand why this is going on. Why are you doing this? Instead, they just talk about him. And you know what it is to grumble, don't you? I'm not the only person who's ever done that. Talk about somebody rather than talk to somebody. This is what's happening here. They're grumbling about Jesus. They say he receives sinners and he eats with them. So therefore, logically, he then is what? Sinner. Not just in the general sense, but in the specific sense. Unclean not to be fellowshiped with, not to be associated with. And so as this crowd presses in and this is beginning to happen, Jesus tells him a story. He tells him a parable. Listen to this, verse 3. Jesus told him this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So he's taking us back to this shepherd motif, right? Remember last week we saw how Jesus told the people and referred to himself as the good shepherd? The shepherd that God had promised to give his people one day, God himself shepherding his people. Jesus said, this was me. I'm the one that knows you. Everything about you, the way the shepherd knows his sheep, I know you from top to bottom, inside and out, every inch of you better than you know yourself, and I still love you. The good shepherd who leads his people, feeds his people, protects his people, even to the point of laying down his own life for his people. Remember we saw last week that Jesus was the good shepherd? Well, there's something else a good shepherd does, and that's what he's gonna try to... Pull, pull out in this story. There's one more thing a good shepherd does. And a good shepherd goes and he seeks and he finds and he rescues his lost sheep. He goes and he finds, he seeks and he finds and he rescues his lost sheep. You know, let's see how might the people have heard this story and how would it have been communicated. Jesus said there was a particular shepherd who had a hundred sheep. So you've got to hear it. When they heard this, that was a pretty good-sized flock. That's like a, a mid-sized business in our day and age, Right? It's not huge, it's not tiny, it's just a mid-sized business. He's doing pretty well for himself. Got a flock of 100 sheep. But here's what happens. He realizes at one point, point, we don't know the details behind it, that one of them is missing. Now remember, we knew from the good shepherd that he knows his sheep. Every single one of them inside and out. So what this means is that when he looks out on his flock and he does that check maybe at night, remember how every night they have to pass under his staff and he calls them by name and he inspects them all over to make sure that they're okay and there's nothing he needs to do to care for them, maybe he realized, wait a minute, that's 99, I'm missing one, but I'm not just missing one in general. Remember, the good shepherd does every single one of them. He knows exactly who's missing. He knows his name. Remember the, the, the one that was born in the dry riverbed? He's not here. And not only does he know his name and everything about him physically, he's loved him and cared for him so much, he knows all of his weaknesses, all of his proclivities. He's always eaten that, that, that bush over there. If he eats too much of it, it's going to kill him. He doesn't know better. I've got to make sure all that's gone before I get him to pasture. He's not safe out there by himself. He knows exactly which one is missing. And so what does he do? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. There's something else that Jesus is trying to communicate in the midst of the story. When we read these parables, we tend to read about these wandering sheep and these sheep that are just kind of making their way off, away from the shepherd, and we think it's so innocent in a sense, don't you? At least I do. I've always tended to read this story and other stories related to the sheep and think there's so much innocence in their wandering. We sing songs, talk about prone to being a wanderer, prone to leave the one I love. I always think it's so innocent. There's this sheep, he's eating, he's not paying attention to where he is, he keeps walking because he sees grass, he looks up and he's not where he was. You know, if you ever been on the ocean, just floating around, and you look up one day and you can't figure out where your towel is, you just were carried along by the current. I always think about this when I think about the sheep. But that's not what's happening. That's not what he's saying. This this sheep who is lost. The way they communicate this and the language they use. This was a willful leaving of the flock. Sheep, though they are not intelligent, though they're rather senseless, like we learned last week, they are rebellious. There are sheep that tend to want to leave the flock. There are sheep that get in fights with each other, and the shepherd has to keep them apart. There are sheep who try to get away. That's what the parable is communicating. There is a sheep who has decided that what he needs is not where he is, but he knows what he needs, and he knows where he's going to get it, and the shepherd may not take him there, but he's going to take himself there. I know what I need, and I'll make sure that I go and get it. This is what this parable is saying, and in a picture, Jesus is giving everybody who's listening a picture of sin in essence. In essence, when we talk about sin, we're talking about the desire to separate ourselves from God, the desire to be away from God, the the desire to be separate from Him, to get away from Him. And we can do it in a number of ways. We can do it the way that people saw those sinners and those tax collectors and these just egregiously immoral lifestyles and ways, but we can do it just like the scribes and Pharisees too. We can use religion and obedience to get away from God as well, to control our own fate and to control our own sense of destiny. He can look both ways. And Jesus says, ultimately, it's his desire to be away from the shepherd, to get away from the shepherd, to not be in his presence and to not trust him. And that's ultimately what sin is, and that's the picture he's painting. And for whatever reason, this sheep leaves. For whatever is causing him to, to run away, to not want to be with the other sheep and the other shepherd, regardless of the motivation, it's a horrible place for him to be. Because as we saw last week, sheep are defenseless. They're absolutely helpless. If somebody were to come upon them or another animal were to come upon them, they couldn't protect themselves. They couldn't even run away from it. Not only that, but they couldn't figure out what food to eat that was healthy for them or which, which plants would kill them. If they ate too much of a particular type of clover, if they just gorged on it, their stomachs would blow up and they would find themselves having a hard time breathing. They could potentially die. If they were to get too muddy, like we saw last week, and their their wool was too heavy with mud, if they were to lay down, they could end up on their back because of the weight, and they couldn't turn themselves back over like a turtle, just kind of flailing there until they died. Completely helpless, completely senseless. A lost sheep who wanders away for whatever reason can't find his way back. Can't do it. Regardless of the motivation, the desire to get away from the shepherd has found this sheep in a very, very precarious position. But here's the thing. Because of his love for the sheep, Because of the value of the sheep to him, because of his love for the sheep, the good shepherd goes after the sheep. He goes after him to rescue him. Kind of like that story in the beginning. Because of my love for Lois, because of her mom's love for her, we'll turn over whatever tables are around to go find him. We'll do whatever necessary to go and get her because of how much we love her. Not because we're looking for an opportunity to find her and then shame her for what she did. Do you realize how much embarrassment you just caused me? Do you realize I, I look like a crazy person because of you? you know, I want you to feel how difficult it was for me. That's not why we go and, and look for them to find them. The good shepherd goes and looks for his sheep because of his love for the sheep. This is just the beginning, just a taste of the understanding of what it is for Jesus to love you as a good shepherd. Those he knows by name. Those whose names, the Bible says, are engraven upon his hands. Because of his love for the sheep, he goes out to find the one lost sheep. Not the one in general, the specific one. The one he knows by name, inside and out. The one who has decided they want to live apart from the shepherd. That they can take care of themselves. That they don't need the shepherd, but who don't realize the position that they're putting themselves in. This is the one because of my love for them. I'm going to go after them. And you've got to think about it. They would have, All of this would have been rumbling through their heads as they heard this story. You've got to think about what that, that trip might have been like for the shepherd. I mean, who knows how long that sheep had been gone and what path or what direction he had gone and what things he had had to get through to get wherever he was. The shepherd was going to have to go do the same thing. It could have been a difficult journey for the shepherd. It could have taken a couple of days. He could have had to go through some mountains, through some rocky trails, maybe cross a creek or a river. Who knows? But he had to go find the sheep, and he does it. He does it because he loves the sheep. His mind is preoccupied with this sheep. The image of this particular sheep, the one he knows by name, is rolling through his mind. It's burned on his brain, and it's consuming him as he goes out to find this sheep. He does it because he loves it. But here's the thing. Is that sheep who has left the shepherd and wandered off on his own, is he thinking about the shepherd? No, he's probably not. But the shepherd is consumed with the sheep. He also doesn't send anybody else to do it for him, does he? He doesn't find somebody else who looks like they're bored, looks like they might need a job. So you know what? You go find my sheep. He looks like all the other ones over there. You go find him. I don't feel like doing it. It's beneath me. I'm tired of this one. He's wandered too many times, too far, too often, and I'm done. You go get him. No, he does it himself because of his love for the sheep. And he doesn't go try to find another one to replace it. He doesn't come across another herd and another flock in a pasture somewhere and make a deal with that shepherd and say, can I have this one? And it will just replace that one. And if you come across mine somewhere, you can have it. If not, oh, well. Well, No, he goes to look for that one sheep. And he doesn't stop until he finds it. He's not looking for a replacement. He's looking for the one he knows by name, the one he loves, his sheep. And look at verse 5. This just gets so good. Look at verse 5. And when he's found it, all right, not if, but when he's found it, no matter how long it took him, no matter what he had to go through to get there, when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, Rejoicing. If you cl- close your eyes. It, it, is that not one of the most amazing pictures that you could ever come up with? Now, don't, don't let art history ruin this for you. And we're not here to make fun of the way artists have portrayed Jesus over the years and how they've painted this image. You can close your eyes and hear it for yourself. The Good Shepherd has gone through whatever he's had to go through to find his sheep, the one he knows by name. And when he finds it, He doesn't smack it with his staff. He doesn't yell at it. He doesn't curse it. He doesn't shame it. He doesn't guilt it. He doesn't rebuke it. He doesn't say, look, come on, follow me. This time, get your act together, I'm done with you, come on. No, he picks it up with joy. You hear that? With joy, it's his delight. He picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders. I don't, I don't know, parents, if you've ever had the experience of feeling like you've lost one of your kids, but when you find them, is there ever a size or a weight at that moment that would ever limit you from grabbing them and picking them up? Would they ever, at any moment in your life, when you feel like you've lost them and then you finally found them, would they ever be too big or too much of a burden for you to try to grab a hold of and hold on to? No, you do it with joy. And the good shepherd finds his sheep and he's not smacking it. He's not guilting it. He's not even correcting it. With joy, he's picking it up and he's placing it on his shoulders. And when he puts it on his shoulders, remember those sheep are so skittish that before they could even lie down in green pastures, he had to do particular things for them to be comfortable, for them to feel safe, so that they could lay down. When they get up on his shoulders and he holds their feet because they're strapped around his shoulders and he has to grab them, man, the way back home. is just a ride of rest for the sheep. No fear in the sheep. No matter what he had to get through to where he was, he's on the shepherd's back, and the shepherd's got his feet. No kicking, no squirming, no burden too great for him to bear. It's his joy, and he takes it all the way back. And it's the shepherd who takes the trek all the way home. It's the shepherd who goes through everything to get the sheep back to the fold. And he does it with delight. And he does it with joy. Look at verse 6. When he comes home, I mean, people are picturing all these things in their mind and it's beginning to kind of fry circuits to try to understand this. Look at verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Jesus doesn't say the shepherd gets home with the lost sheep and he's happy to be home. He doesn't say there's so much joy in the shepherd because he's finally back home. He's been on this long trek chasing this wandering sheep that won't ever stay where he's supposed to stay that thinks he knows better than he does and he's finally home and he can finally sit down and eat so he's happy. He doesn't say he comes home and all of his friends are there, they're gathering around so all of a sudden he's happy. No, he says the joy that he has for having found his one lost sheep eclipses every other possible joy he could have. For the joy of having found that sheep, he calls his friends together and says rejoice with me. Not because I'm home, Not because I'm back, not because we've got a disobedient sheep to eat for dinner. No, I found my one lost sheep. That joy is greater than all other possible joys for this good shepherd. Look at verse 7, see how he wraps this up. Jesus says, just so I tell you this. So here's what I want you to get. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no Repentance. And Charles Spurgeon says it better than anybody else alive could have ever said it besides Jesus. Spurgeon said, There is enough joy. Just listen to this. Just again, if you need to close your eyes to see this, just listen to this. There's enough joy in the heart of Christ, in the heart of a good shepherd over his saved one to flood all of heaven with delight. The streets of paradise run knee deep. With the heavenly waters of the Savior's joy, they flow out of the very soul of Christ and angels and glorified spirits bathe in the mighty stream. What's Jesus trying to say to these who are grumbling about what's going on? God the Father is happy to save those who are his and lost. God is happy to save He's not happy at the religion that they're expressing. He's not happy at people doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He's not happy with everybody trying to figure out what the right thing to do is at the right time to look the right way with no love for him or dependence upon him at all with the sense that they deserve the grace of God because of what they've done and what they're doing. He's not happy at that at all. But the one lost sheep who realizes they're lost, who recognizes the place that they're in apart from the shepherd, Who recognizes the need they have for the shepherd and turns to the shepherd when they hear his voice? For that one sheep, all of heaven rejoices. There is no greater joy. God is delighted to save. And here's the thing I think so many of us think that in our repentance and in our recognition of our need for a shepherd, in our proneness to wander, in our desire to wander, and we recognize how often we want to do that, and all the ways that we try to do that. So many of us fear that when we actually hear his voice and we want to turn to him, that when we do, the rod's just coming. The staff's just coming. One more time. Why'd you do this? Are you not smarter than this? When are you ever going to get done? I'm done with you. I'm done. This is the 10th time, and I'm done. It's not how the love of God works at all. That's not how it works at all. See, here's the good news. The, the shepherd, he's standing right there with the lost sheep, and he calls it by name. No matter what he did to get away, no matter what reason it was that caused him to run, the shepherd is standing right there, and he calls his name. And it's been a long trip. It's been a long trek. It, it could have taken a very long time. But here's the thing. The good shepherd never stops his search until he finds his sheep. And when he finds his sheep and calls his name, the sheep just turned. And the shepherd picks him up. Doesn't scold him. Doesn't correct him. Doesn't beat him. Doesn't guilt him. Doesn't shame him. Doesn't even require them now to walk behind him in a particular way to get home. He picks him up. He picks him up. And Jesus is trying to communicate as the good shepherd That's the way he loves you. That's the way he loves you. As you hear his voice and you turn, he's there to pick you up. You don't have to walk back, figure out the way home, figure out how to take care of yourself, do X, Y, and Z before he's ready to bring you home. No, he just picks you up. That's the good news. That's the good news we've been looking at or this entire story of redemption. That's the way the love of God works. Religion looks at the sheep and says, you know what, you need to figure out how to get home. I mean, how many of you feel like everywhere around you somebody or something is telling you, I realize you're lost, I realize you're hungry, I realize you're tired, life has beaten you to a pulp, but what you need to do is just get back to the fold. Just get back to where things are right. Just get back to where you need to be and you don't know how to get there that's religion. Religion jumps in and says, well, here's how you get there. Do this, this, and this, and you'll find your way back to the fold. The good news of what Jesus is trying to communicate is that that's not how the love of God works. When you are lost, and you find yourself in that position, and you realize your lostness. Just like last week, you realize your sheepishness, and the necessity you have for a good shepherd. And he calls your name, you just turn, and he picks you up, and he carries you. And he's been seeking you all along. His mind has been set on you all along. That's what he's trying to say. But here's the thing there are so many people, and I know there are many of them in here right now, who sit there and think it's a great story. It's a great idea. I desperately want to believe that. But to what extent is he willing to go? I've wandered a long time, I've wandered a far distance. Is there a range to which the shepherd won't travel? That's where you get a story, and that's where you get an encounter where Jesus demonstrates just how far he's willing to go. Flip over to Luke chapter 19. I I want you just to see this parable demonstrated in the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 19. Right before he has this famous encounter with a man named Zacchaeus, who, whether you've been in church your whole life or maybe this is one of the first times you've ever been, you're probably somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. It's one of those cultural phenomenons that people are are familiar with. But we're gonna try to, again, get as best we can into how people would have experienced it. But right before he encounters Zacchaeus, in chapter 18, we find Jesus again telling his disciples, here's what's gotta happen. Here's the third time, Luke 18, he says, look, I've gotta go to Jerusalem. This is where we're going. This is a must for me must get to Jerusalem, and when we get there, here's what's going to happen, they're going to take me, they're going to flog me, they're going to beat me, the Son of Man is going to be crucified, but on the third day, he's going to rise. If you remember, they still couldn't quite figure out what he was meaning by all this, because it didn't compute for them, their understanding was different, but he's telling them, here's where we're going, and in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, this is the last act of Jesus' earthly ministry that Luke records for us, so there's something important there. When they order things and they tell those things, there's a reason why they put them in a particular order. And this is the last earthly act of Jesus' ministry that Luke gives us, so there's something there. And right before he met Zacchaeus, he met another man who's pretty familiar to those of us who have been around the church for a while, a man we often call the rich young ruler. And he met this rich young ruler, and this young ruler came to him and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want eternal life. What do I have to do? And Jesus discerns his heart, and he says, here's what you have to do get rid of everything you have. Let go of all of those things and cling to me and you'll have eternal life. And Luke in chapter 18 says, he became increasingly sad because he couldn't do it. And he turned. He couldn't let go of that stuff. He he couldn't. It was too important to him. Jesus was not valuable enough to him. And then Jesus goes and he meets this man Zacchaeus. And right right after that rich young ruler, His disciples were looking at him and they said, if he can't be saved, if this young guy who comes to you wanting eternal life can't be saved, who can be saved then? Who can be saved? Jesus is gonna answer it right here with Zacchaeus. Just watch this, verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, I want you to to picture it. Again, if you're new to us all the time, I try to say it around here. Read it like a human. I want you to read the Bible like a human. And Jericho was a real place. These are real people. And in Jesus' day, Jericho was a stunning city. It was a ridiculously amazing city. You would cross the Jordan River heading up to Jerusalem, and the first town you'd come into as you crossed the river was Jericho, and it was in the desert. But here's the thing. There was a huge Roman aqueduct that was built for the purpose of hydrating Jericho in the desert. So though Jericho was in the desert, it had these lush, just plantations of palm trees and gardens. And and here's what historians say. I'll I'll just let you uh, historians tell you what was going on. They said, Jericho had gardens designed by the greatest Roman architects, groves of feathery palms, rising in stately beauty, stretched gardens of roses, and sweet-scented balsam plantations. Jericho was rightly called in its day the perfumed city. Just the air in the city was like perfume because of all that grew there. It was called the City of Palms, the garden city of the ancient world, and the Eden of Palestine, the fairyland of the old world. It was also the place of vacation. So, priests, when they weren't on rotation in the temple, because there was a lot of priests who did the work of the temple and they weren't working during certain parts of the year, they had homes and places in Jericho. They'd make the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho to spend their off season wealthy people would have homes in Jericho. Jericho was a major trade route because of the river right there and its proximity to Jerusalem. So caravans were always coming in and out of Jericho, building business, both legitimate and, and illegitimate. But the other thing about Jericho and how it's so important in this story, we'll see in just a second, is that Jericho was one of the three regional trade centers in all of Israel. Because it was one of the three regional centers, it was one of the three regional tax centers in all of Israel. There were three main centers in Israel you went to get pay taxes One of them was Jericho, which made tax collectors in Jericho a pretty popular person for often the wrong reasons. But this is where Jesus is going. He's entering into Jericho. Watch this, verse 2. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. You're familiar with Zacchaeus. Do you know what his name means? You ever heard that one? When he was born, his mom and dad gave him a name. And when people named their children back then, they named them names that meant things. hopes dreams blessings for their children not whatever would sound cool and wouldn't be the name of somebody else in their class they had meanings Zacchaeus means the righteous one these were the hopes and the aspirations his parents had for him when he was born the name they gave him the righteous one behold there was a man named Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector and he was rich Now, we've talked about tax collectors before, but we haven't talked about chief tax collectors. What that means is, of all the tax collectors in Jericho, all those extorting the passerbys, all those extorting money from the people of Israel, everybody traveling through Jericho, they all had to pay a cut of their profits to Zacchaeus. He sat on top of them all. At the hierarchy of tax collectors, he was at the top. And he got a cut of everybody's profits. He was the chief tax collector. And Luke makes it really clear that he was rich. That's exceedingly rich. Same word he uses for the rich young ruler. He wants you to see the parallel here. This man was exceedingly rich. The majority of his money had come, though taxes are legal from illegitimate means, extortion. He was a rich tax collector, the chief of tax collectors. If this man can't be saved, who can be saved? Well, this man sat on the top of the most hated list in Israel, at least in Jericho. He was the chief of these tax collectors. Verse 24, Jesus, oh, sorry, he was, verse 3, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't see him because he was small in stature. Despised, disfellowshipped, considered unclean, cast aside by the religious people in Israel, but desiring to see Jesus. The buzz about Jesus had been building And just weeks before he entered Jericho, he had been in the nearby town of Bethany where he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Crowds had been following him wherever he went. And it was tradition or custom when a pilgrim or a rabbi would come through your town to come out and greet them, to welcome them, to come out and see them in the town. And so people were coming out because this man Jesus was coming, but crowds were following him because of all the things he had done. And here comes Zacchaeus. He wants to see Jesus, but what you've got to get, and I miss it all the time when I read this, Zacchaeus wasn't just curious to see Jesus. There wasn't just a, hey, this guy's been around, I've I've heard rumors, I wonder what he's like. This wasn't just human curiosity that motivated Zacchaeus to go and see Jesus. There was something else at play. And you get it when you actually just kind of read the story. He was a little guy, and that was a big crowd, and that posed a big problem for him. So he had to do something. Look at verse 4. He ran on ahead, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. Or he was about to pass that way. Here's why I tell you that Zacchaeus was not just curious as a curious bystander interested in a celebrity that was passing through town. There were two things that men did not do in that day, especially men of his stature. Remember, a wealthy man, probably wearing a very nice, very expensive tunic. There were two things that men who were dignified like that did not do. One, they didn't run, especially not in public. Little boys run in public. And to run in a tunic, you've got to grab that thing wrap it up between your legs, tie it into your belt to be able to run. Zacchaeus, this little wealthy man in his nice expensive tunic, there's something going on in his heart when it comes to this man, Jesus. There's something about Jesus and something that's going on in Zacchaeus that causes him to think about the, the lack of dignity that it would take for him to strap that thing up in public and run. But he does it. He does it. And not only that, there's another thing you didn't do as a man, especially not a dignified man. He didn't climb a tree. Little boys climb trees. Men don't climb trees, especially not dressed like that. But he does. He puts aside all the potential shame, all the potential looks. I mean, just think. Think and remember, how despised is this chief of tax collectors in this town? Just think of what he would have gone through to walk out into a crowd like that. The taunts, the insults, the things that probably would have been thrown at him. The people just kind of partying when he came by because you couldn't touch him. If you touched him, you'd be unclean. I mean, he was unclean. He was a sinner, tax collector, chief of them all. He said, forget it. I, 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 what you think of me, whatever dignity I'm trying to put out there, well, I don't care. There's something about this man Jesus and something going on. I've got to see him. And so he, he packs up the tunic, runs, jumps in the tree to see Jesus. This wasn't just simple Curiosity. This wasn't just a a traveler coming through town that he had to see. It wasn't a celebrity that showed up in in his village and he just wanted to get a picture of him. There was something going on in this man's heart. In verse five, we get to meet him. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Again, think of all that's going on. Do your best. Put yourself in Zacchaeus' place. If you can even imagine just how hated you would have been and despised you would have been. Something so important about this man, something so desperate in you to see this man that it would cause you to put aside whatever potential shame and reputation that you had to get a glimpse of him. Because you knew if you could just see him, something, I, I don't know what, but something might happen. And so you run and you climb a tree and you're up there and he comes by and. One day in heaven, I would love to know what this looks like and what it feels like, and if you could show, but you lock eyes with Jesus. What, What must that moment have been like? Up there in that tree, just something stirring. I got to see him, and he comes by, and you don't just get a glimpse. He stops, and he looks up, and he locks eyes with you. And in that moment, when he locks eyes with you, you see his mouth move, and you see his lips form your name. And off of his tongue and out of his mouth, you hear your name. What must that be like? What an amazing scene. Jesus gets to that spot. And here's the thing. I think I read this all the time, and I think for most of my life I've read this story and thought, well, there's this little guy scurrying up a tree, and it's kind of distracting, and so Jesus looks up, and there's a guy in a tree, Zacchaeus. Of course, he was God. He knew who he was. Zacchaeus scurrying up a tree to not get Jesus' attention. you got to get this. This is the good shepherd who knows his sheep. Every single last one of them. He doesn't just know one is missing. He knows exactly who is lost. Jesus wasn't distracted by this little man screwing up a tree, so he stops and looks at him. Jesus knew he was gonna be there. It had been his intention all along to stop and to see Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus thought he was gonna get a glimpse of Jesus. He was gonna go and try to find Jesus and get up there and see him. Jesus all along knew that he was coming for Zacchaeus, and he you knew it because of what he said. He said, Zacchaeus, hurry down. Get, get out of the tree, son, Come here. I must go to your house today. I must go to your house today. There's only a few things Jesus says he must do in the gospel according to Luke. It's called divine necessity. He must go to Jerusalem. He must preach the good news of the kingdom. He looks at Zacchaeus dead in the eye and says, I must go to your house today. It's why I'm here. This is not a casual, like, look, it's a good time to stop. There's a little guy up there. I bet he's wealthy. Look at his tunic. I know who he is. He's got a big house. He can give me nice food. Zacchaeus, come down. Let's go to your house. No, I must. This is why I came. This is part of the necessity that's in my mission. It's why I'm here. Get down from a tree. I must go to your house today. And don't get caught in the trap of thinking that Zacchaeus whistled or said something to get Jesus' attention. Jesus is the one who took the initiative, who called out Zacchaeus by name. Jesus is the one who called him. It wasn't the other way around. Imagine what that must have felt like for Zacchaeus in that moment. This man, he's heard all about him. There's something stirring in him that's causing him to to have this desire and this need to see him. There's something, and we don't know what it is, but there's just something that he knows. If you can see him, something is going to happen. Why else would he go through the trouble of doing what he's doing to get there to see Jesus? And then he says, get down, I'm coming to your house. No righteous person has ever stepped foot in his house. He's unclean. It, it's so, some of these stories are so hard for us to grasp because we don't live in this kind of society to the same degree that they did, but in his entire adult life, no person who was ever considered clean has ever stepped foot in his house. They couldn't. If they did, they would be unclean. And here's this man, Jesus. He's saying, Get down. He's heard all about him, he knows exactly who he said he is. Heard all the stories of what he's done. I'm coming to your house. And you see a couple different responses. Look at this, verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried down. He hurried and he came down and he received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, talking about those who had gathered around, the scribes and the Pharisees, they all grumbled. Seen that before, haven't we? They've all grumbled. Talking about what Jesus has done rather than talking to Jesus himself. And here's what they're saying He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Not, that's Zacchaeus. That's the chief tax collector. Not, look how much he is despised by the people of Israel. And here comes the Messiah, the one we're all following and eager to see. He looks at Zacchaeus and offers him mercy, not praise God for the grace and mercy of the Messiah. No, you can't go do that, Jesus. That's not how it works. Not celebration for what Jesus is showing, Zacchaeus, no. Instead, it's, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work, Jesus. Don't you realize that I've done all the things? We, religious people over here, we're doing everything that we're supposed to do. We're doing all the things the law of God tells us to do. But we're the ones who are staying clean. But you, you're not supposed to go and do that, Jesus. They grumbled. They were upset at how the mercy of God was being shown to this man. It's another sermon for another time, but... You know if you're really honest with yourself, there's somebody in your life and in your heart that you would probably grumble about if you saw the grace of God shown to them, the mercy of God come to them. I don't know who they are. I don't know how they've hurt you. I don't know what they've done to you. But here's the thing, the minute we ever see the grace of God collide with the life of another human being and we find ourselves going, "Mm, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We find ourselves grumbling about what God is doing in their life. You need to know that's the moment your heart has begun to believe that you deserve the grace of God that you've received. That's the moment you realize you're finally doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons because you don't deserve the grace of God any more than that person does. You did nothing to earn it. Just as lost, just as desperate as they are. And the moment you start grumbling when the grace of God begins to change their life, it's the moment you begin to realize that you have begun to buy into a lie that you deserve the grace of God that you've received. There's something about you that earned it and merited it. And that's what's happening here with the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus isn't supposed to work like that. He's not supposed to show this kind of acceptance to this kind of person. No, it's supposed to come to me. I, I've deserved it. I earned it. I'm doing it all right. Jesus is just dismantling all these misunderstandings. But Zacchaeus, see, he hears Jesus call his name. He hears Jesus call him down from the tree and he hurries down and receives him joyfully. Some of you may be wondering if Jesus could really ever get to a place where he could call you by name, call you his friend. If he could ever show you the kind of mercy that he's demonstrating to this man Zacchaeus. That's why this story goes so well with the the story of, of the lost sheep. There's so much hope in this. There's so much hope. Zacchaeus is there and Luke records him because in the life of Israel, there couldn't be anybody worse. There couldn't be anybody worse than the chief tax collector. But Jesus calls him by name. Calls him down. And he's gonna go to his house. And he's gonna go spend time with him. He's gonna go eat dinner with him. He's gonna stay with him. And we're gonna watch something absolutely dramatic begin to happen. Watch this. Zacchaeus, he hurried down, and we get to verse 8, Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, behold, now, you've got to realize, there's some time that's elapsed between Zacchaeus coming down the tree, and this exclamation that he makes, they've gone back to his house, Jesus, his disciples, Zacchaeus, whoever's with him, whoever he brings in, they've gone back to his house, they're eating, they're resting, and here's the thing, this is what's so great about this story, and I've been so frustrated by it for so many years, we don't get any indication of what Jesus said to Zacchaeus. We have no idea. They sit there, they eat dinner. We have no idea what Jesus said to him. Wouldn't you love a gospel conversation with a man like Zacchaeus from Jesus? Wouldn't you love to hear what he said? How he challenged him, how he encouraged him? I mean, what, how he kind of got in there? and Nothing. Luke doesn't even give us a syllable. All we know is that something powerful happened. Because Zacchaeus stood up at some point and Jesus was no longer just a prophet, no longer just a pilgrim coming through town, no longer just this rabbi he had heard about, this man that he had these things in his heart he had to see, all of a sudden he became the Messiah. Zacchaeus Zacchaeus stood up and he said, Lord. He called him his Lord, his King, his Savior, his Messiah. Something happened. Something changed. And what we see and how we know is the evidence of What he says about who Jesus is and how he responds to the grace that he's been given. Look at what he does. He says, Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, not really, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. No record of what Jesus said, no record of how he got him there. No record of how the transformation actually happened. Just that it did. Jesus was now Lord. Jesus was now Savior. Jesus was now, to Zacchaeus, his good shepherd. He had seen his need for him, and he had received Jesus gladly and with joy. And because of that, transformation happened. And he said, look, half of my stuff I'm going to give to the poor. It was a part of the necessity of the people of God to take care of the poor. It wasn't part of the law that you had to give half your stuff, just that you're generous. He takes half of his stuff and he gives it to the poor. He had never done that before. With the half he has left now. Alright? So half is gone. He says, if I've ever extorted anybody, really, that was his job. If I've ever extorted anybody, I'll repay it fourfold. Fourfold. Now, There are rules of restitution in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 22 in particular relates to this. He goes beyond the law of God. This isn't him trying to do all the right things now because he he has this need to do this so that he can be saved. This is a transformed heart that is now responding in a generosity paralleled the best he can to what he had received. He had received a grace and a generosity and a mercy from God that had absolutely transformed him and now he's just trying to live. Now he's just trying to reflect. He gives away half his stuff to the poor to take care of the poor. He pays back those he's extorted four times what he had taken, all with joy because of what had happened. And Jesus sums the whole point of it up. Right here, verse 10. Son of man, son of man, he came to seek and save the lost. Remember, the disciples had just been with him when this rich young ruler came. And he couldn't let it go. His stuff was just too important to him. Jesus wasn't valuable enough to him to let go of his stuff. Zacchaeus comes, meets the same Jesus. The transformed man. The disciples had said, who, if this guy can't get saved, who can get saved? And Jesus said, with men, it's impossible, but nothing. Nothing's impossible with God. This is the extent to which the grace of God goes. And this is the extent to which the good shepherd goes. He goes even to the chief of sinners, the chief of tax collectors, because he came to seek and save the lost. mean, ultimately, this is the fulfillment of the redemptive story we've been looking at. God has come in Christ to seek and to save his lost sheep. Each one, as the prophet Isaiah said that we looked at, has turned his own way. Every single one of us has turned our own way. Not just innocently wandering off as we find green grass. Turning our own way. Wanting nothing to do with him. Wanting nothing to do with the good shepherd. Each have wandered off on our own way. None of us seeks him. None of us goes after him. But he, the good shepherd, comes to seek and save those who are lost. He is the one that God promised that will be the shepherd of the sheep. God said, I myself will make my sheep lie down. I will seek the lost I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Jesus, as the good shepherd, is a seeker and a savior for those who are lost and those who are in great danger. So here's the thing. The world world we live in tends to look at us and, and characterize us and define us by what we have, what we've accomplished, what we look like. And people looked at Zacchaeus, had him completely pegged. Rich little tax collector. I know exactly who you are and what that means. But when Jesus looked at him, Jesus saw one of his lost sheep. Jesus looked at Zacchaeus and saw one of his lost sheep. One that he came to seek, one that he came to save. The same thing is true of you. It does not matter how much you have accomplished what you think of yourself, how much money you have, how good-looking you think you are, how loved or despised by others you may or may not be, if you do not know him as your good shepherd, you are lost. You are lost. And that is an eternally dangerous place to be because you cannot save yourself. You cannot fix it. You are in need of rescue. Something in Zacchaeus, by the work of God's Spirit, Began to dawn on him. That day he climbed a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Just hope something, if I could just see him, something, something's gonna happen. Well, here's the thing. Jesus went on to Jerusalem after this encounter to hang on a tree so that you and I could have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. And every single week, as part of our time here, and kind of our rhythm here, we give you a chance to respond to that. We give you a chance to recognize your own need of a Savior, your own need for this good shepherd, your own prone nature to wander, to realize your need, the danger you're in, but to hear him call your name, to hear his voice, and for you to let him pick you up. Let him put you on his shoulders. Let him carry you all the way safely home. We do that by praying and giving you a couple of minutes to just reflect, to let him deal with you and you deal with him. And then after a couple of minutes, we come together and as a family, we take communion, remembering Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin. And that's what we're about to do. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna have a moment to respond to the good shepherd who's right there, who calls us by name, who calls us to himself. Let me pray for us and then we'll. God, these these stories, these texts have reminded me again just how desperately I need you to come and tell me the truth about myself. To remind me of just how much like these sheep I really am. Just how prone I am to think I don't need you. To think I know what I need and I can get it myself. Just how prone I am and how ignorant I am. And I need you to come and tell me the truth about myself. I need you to do what I can't do, to give me access to you. I need you to seek me. I need you to find me. I need you to to come and to call my name and and to come and to rescue me. I need you to guide me and protect me and lead me just like a great shepherd. I need you to be my good shepherd. All of these things, God, have pointed me time and time again and again this week to just what you have done for us in your son, Jesus. Jesus, our good shepherd. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for seeking us. Thank you for finding us. Thank you for laying down your life in my place, in our place for our sin. And thank you. Thank you, Father, for raising him from the dead. Thank you for defeating death. Thank you for defeating sin. Thank you for defeating our enemies in our place. Thank you that you call us by name. And when we turn to you, you don't scold us. You don't correct us. You don't beat us down. You pick us up and you put us on your shoulders, and you carry us safely home. I ask, God, that you would do that this morning for those who have never heard your voice, who have never heard you call their name. I ask that you would do that this morning. And for those of us who have forgotten just how good you are, for those of us who have forgotten what it means for you to be our good shepherd, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would do what only you could do, and you would remind us of that. You'd make it real to us in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.